You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my fascinating friendly co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. Today, we are joined by Jamie Shimonki. She is the Chief Medical Officer of California Cryobank, Bank. And we were just talking to Jamie. She lives out in beautiful LA, right, Jamie? That's right. And we were just talking about, you know, tell us some cool hobby that you do. Like, do you surf? And she goes, well, actually, I like being outdoors, but not... He likes to leave town. <laughs> but not necessarily in California. So tell us about what you like to do in your downtime. That's right. A lot of people assume that, you know, I'm hanging out by the beach and that I love the sun and I have very glamorous uh, pastimes in Los Angeles, <laughs> but I am the opposite of glamorous. My husband and I spend all the time we can in a little cabin on the Snake River in Idaho. Um, and it's really hard for me to get him to do all the crazy things I like to do. But I love to be in the white water in my kayak or off-roading in an ATV. And yeah, you'll have to just Google what I look like because I think it's even funnier when you put those two images together. <laughs> so do you guys have like a big plot of land on the Snake River? Or? Yeah, by by LA standards, it's pretty big. It's about five acres. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and it's mount is it mountainous there too where you are? It is. It's right in the Rocky Mountain region. Yeah. So um it's gorgeous. I mean, you know, I think Montana stole the big sky. What's how, that? How did you like find this specific area? Like I, I, I would love to live somewhere else when I retire, but I'm like, how <laughs> do I pick that one place? That's right. Well, usually you need to have a hobby that gets you there. So my husband loves to fly fish. And uh -huh. this is on the South Fork of the Snake River, which is one of the best fly fishing places in the world. And I'm always a little nervous about telling people about that because part of what makes it so great is nobody knows about it. <laughs> yeah. So so you so he fly fishes and the, I think the, one of the first times that I went water rafting, rafting was in the Grand Tetons in the Snake River. Yeah, and that was right. That was pretty rough. And so yeah. you you kayak that without like by yourself, without anybody else? I, I do. Depending on where I am, I, I wear a helmet. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, our little stretch of the river. So where you're talking about is out of Jackson Hole. And that yeah. is that is canyon and that is crazy. Um, <laughs> and then there's this, there's a dam, an agricultural dam. A lot of the potatoes and everything we think about from Idaho agriculturally is because of the, the, uh, the snake river and this, uh, the dam system, okay. but we benefit from having a little calmer water. Um, mm. I can, I will try to fly fish. I'm terrible at it, but, uh, it still beats, you know, sitting in LA traffic any day. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's the weather? Is it, is it, how often is it warm there? Cause I know in that area, it's not warm, maybe two or three months and the rest of the time it's pretty chilly or. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're there every Memorial day to open up the cabin and about half the time it's snowing and the other half the time it's 80 degrees. And really? then we have glorious, glorious summer. Um, and by Labor Day, you never know. So yeah. 
but but you need the snowpack and years you don't have a snowpack the whole ecosystem is is thrown off so i pack up my bags and i go back to sunny california where it's 70 degrees in my backyard pretty much every day of the year (laughs) wow it sounds like you have a pretty good life jamie it's a good setup setup. (laughs) sounds like a good setup yeah so well susan do you have a question for us today I do. I do. So our question today is, hi, doctors. First, thank you for the podcast. It's been so helpful and fun to listen to. My question is, when considering PCOS, high androgens is considered one of the qualifying criteria. What exactly is a high number for women in her early 30s? My level was 70, which was flagged as high. However, when searching Dr. Google, some things came uh, up saying that 70 was normal. For reference, I'm 31 with very irregular cycles, usually longer than 45 days and I have not scheduled with an REI yet, just being seen by my general OB-GYN. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. What do you think, Carrie? What, Carrie, talk about the diagnostic criteria for PCOS just real quick. So in order to get a diagnosis of PCOS, you need to have um, irregular cycles and you need to have high androgen levels. And that can either be by lab criteria or by clinical criteria. And when I say clinical criteria, I mean acne, facial hair, back hair, um, generally hair where you really don't want it to be. Um, And then a number of eggs kind of above and beyond the normal count. And you really need two out of the three of those. And so my guess is that someone was checking your androgen levels to figure out, okay, do you fall into this? Now, there are some people that we can just look at and talk to and say, my periods are greater than every 45 days. I have crazy acne that I just cannot get rid of. And that that can get you the diagnosis of PCOS right there. When you're looking at the lab criteria and you're asking about normal versus abnormal, the lab criteria is helpful, but it's not everything. And what I mean by that is that even just a 1% swing in available androgens, so usually testosterone is what we're talking about, bound testosterone versus free testosterone, a 1% swing in the amount of free testosterone you have can lead to wildly different symptoms, even though the lab level itself is not going to be wildly different. And so um, the criteria for labs are going to vary depending on who did your lab um, and what the actual lab standards are. Um, You know, off the top of my head, 70 sounds decently elevated for a young woman. Um, But Abby, what were you going to add? Yeah. And I think, you know, with PCOS, you're trying to put something in a perfect box that doesn't always fit there. And I think from a fertility standpoint, you know, there's lots of lots of aspects to PCOS that we can talk about. But from a fertility standpoint, what you really care about is, are you making an egg every month? And so, you know, whether you have PCOS or whether you may have a variant or whether it's just unexplained, you just don't ovulate every month. The key is you've got to ovulate every month in order to be able to get pregnant. So, a lot of the treatments that we use for people that don't ovulate regularly, and I'm guessing that's kind of what may be part of your problem, are really the same, whether we say you have PCOS or not. It doesn't really make a big difference if you have that diagnosis or not. Yeah, I like to think of PCOS as being a spectrum. There are some people who are more severe. There are people who are less severe. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, it, it, it is an ovulatory disorder and we're going to treat it appropriately as such. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to turn back to Jamie. And I I, I don't think I said your official title, but uh, again, Jamie uh, Shimonki, who's the chief medical officer of California Cryobank, and she knows about all things sperm. And it sounds like she has many facets to her job, but her major job is, you know, basically um, overseeing California Cryobank. And 
you know, I think the three of us are really interested in hearing what she has to say, too, because for really for my whole career, for 20 years, we've dealt with California Cryobank. So it's really a privilege and an honor. And it's really just really cool to talk to somebody that is behind the scenes at California Cryobank. And, and like Jamie said, her goal is to really open the curtains and make everything transparent. And so one of the big questions we really had is tell us a little bit about how sperm donors are screened, because I think patients are really interested in that. Um, and I'm, I'm just fascinated to hear what you have to say, Jamie. And first yeah. of all, how do they, how do they, how do the sperm donors even find you guys like yeah. before you get to screening? Where do they come from? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Of course, the answer to that is, has changed through the years. Um, you know, the cryobank was established in 1977. And so wow. back in the day, they set up shop in uh, places that had high populations of, of college students, and they were placing ads in college newspapers. Um, I don't think college kids even know about newspapers anymore. So, <laughs> no, um, no, I have no, one. Those are just printed internet pages, you mean. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I have an almost 21-year-old son who's in college, and I don't think he would even know where to find a newspaper if he had to start no. you know, a campfire. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so we, we, we target donors based on geography um, on, you know, through digital means. So uh, usually we can pretty much figure out how old you are and, and that you identify as male. And, uh, and these guys, including some of my son's friends, get targeted, <laughs> which is really kind of a wake up to say, oh, my God. <laughs> um, but, you know, the other thing is that we've seen the average age of both applicants and qualified donors increasing through the years. So where it huh. used to be really more focused on college college kids, we find, and, and as I take you through the, the process of how somebody gets qualified, um, really those younger guys, they just, they don't qualify as readily. And so the average age is really more in the 25 to 28 year range now, which still sounds very young. To, yeah, that's to, still, still really still young. young. And yeah. is there an upper limit then? And you may talk about that in the screening, but is there an upper limit for donors? There is. There is an upper limit of age 40, which means you could enter the program up to age 38. And several societies, including ASRM, actually recommend that as the upper limit. And the main reason is because we know there's an increased risk of uh, certain genetic conditions, uh, primarily autism that's been identified and associated with older age of men um, and sperm. So, um, so yeah, that's the upper age limit. And, uh, and as I said, you know, we really are seeing more guys who are, are probably uh, out of college and thinking about how to support themselves and saying, okay, maybe, maybe this would be an interesting option to supplement my income. What, what types of questions do you ask these people when they're applying? Oh my gosh. Well, the, the list of questions is, uh, is very, very long, but maybe it would help if I sort of broke it down by category, sort of what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, to start, I'll say it surprises a lot of people that only 1% or fewer than 1% of the applicants who apply ultimately become donors. So it's a very, very selective process. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also important to say that we start with, and we're trying to kind of recruit for the kind of guy who is going to pass our tests of altruism. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more in the psych screening step, but it really all starts with the, a message around be a hero. So yes, people are typically looking to supplement their income, but more than ever, the guys who apply and who are interested in our ads 
um, either were conceived by IVF or they have friends were, or they have um, gay friends who are dependent on sperm donors. So they have some kind of personal connection. And so we do wind up sort of screening for these guys who are more altruistically motivated. Um, so, so that's the very beginning. Um, and then one of the very first things that we're screening for, of course, is sperm quality. So a lot of men are surprised to find out that they don't have great sperm quality. And, and I know there's even been reports of this in the lay press recently around declining quality of sperm. And it's real. I mean, we've done a lot of retrospective um, analysis. And we see that over the last few decades, the quantity and quality of sperm has declined. So, um, so that often actually disqualifies people off the bat. So in what kind of just what criteria for sperm amount do you, you know, obviously it can fluctuate from, from sample to sample, but you know, the, the most recent WHO criteria, you know, seems to be very low compared to the, the criteria a long time ago. So where do you guys aim for? Do you aim for somewhere in the middle or? Yeah, no, we're actually, you know, WHO criteria we've considered, especially from a morphology perspective, because we don't have a lot of good surrogate markers for what makes quality healthy sperm, if you will. But we're also trying to make a number of vials every time somebody donates, because that ultimately makes it economically more efficient for the process. Um, and so our criteria for a donor to qualify is much higher than what we would consider from a clinical perspective as being normal. So it's a very different evaluation than if you're evaluating a reproductive couple. So you're going to have to be even more normal than the normal person. That's right. Um, and we do give them a lot of opportunities because as you mentioned, it's totally correct from one week to the next, um, you could see differences in sperm count. And that could be influenced also by, you know, these guys don't always tell the truth when we say, when is the last time you ejaculated? And they say three days ago, and it was three hours ago. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that can influence that. And, and we never, never want to send somebody away with the idea that maybe I'm subfertile. Um, but if we do get an indication that maybe their sperm count isn't what you would expect for an otherwise young, healthy man, we will give them the information they need to follow up on that. So what other areas do you look at? So you look at sperm count, but tell us a little bit about kind of the categories of questions that you ask. So the other major category, what we're looking at is, um, is in the psychological evaluation. Um, and interestingly, this is newer, uh, newer to be evaluating sperm donors with psych evals than egg donors. Um, an interesting comparison, I think. We started this about six years ago or so, um, and it's conducted a, in a two-step process. So there's a clinical interview. Um, we have the uh, PhD level and ASRM associated uh, psychologist um, working with the donors and evaluating the donors. So that clinical interview piece, it's, it's as much an educational session for the donor um, as it is um, an ability to really assess their understanding of the, the long-term implications. The Are you talking to your friends and family about this? How do you feel about LGBTQ couples uh, building their family with your sperm? Um, are you estranged with family members? Are you going to tell your children? There's a whole bunch of questions that these guys have not thought about, but really impacts their ability to make an informed decision about whether they want to do this or not. Because there's another whole piece, which is new, and that is that donors are not given the option to be anonymous. Duh. <laughs> um, and so we require them to sign up as an ID disclosure donor. And so this session helps them understand that as well. 
What does that mean, an ID disclosure donor? I know. Don't you love the nomenclature in this business? We make up we make up words and expect everybody to know what it means. Um, so this means that at the age of 18, the donor-conceived person will be entitled by a legal agreement that the donor has signed oh. um, to find out the identifying information about that donor. Um, so we've been sort of dipping our toe in the water for many, many, many years. And then about six years ago, we made the sort of determination that, hey, we can't promise somebody that they can be anonymous. Oh, wow. Why in the world that's, did you make it an option? Yeah, that's. Yeah. I didn't realize that about California. I think that's great because I think you're right. So many people don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, even in this day and age, a lot of our patients will say, well, I don't want to tell my child, you know, well, you know, the reality of it is, like you said, now really nothing's anonymous anymore when it comes to eggs or sperm. So I think that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. I was a, a big driver, um, of, you know, making that decision because yeah, I feel like ethically it is the right thing to do. Yes, absolutely. And we're, we're living in a time where we have, we actually have peer reviewed data that look at the impact of disclosure within donor-conceived families um, and understanding sort of that these children are not only not harmed by this knowledge, but they are resoundingly, you know, um, high-functioning and healthy uh, and can bond just as well as their non-biological parents. So we know so much more about donor conception and family building that I think it's really helped everybody kind of move into the, the future. Um, so that psych screen is important. And in that same visit, we, we do use some objective tools. Um, so there's psychometric testing. The PAI is our test of choice. But what's nice about that is it puts everybody on a you know, a, a, a standard deviation for various factors. So you can look for depressive symptoms or grandiose thinking. I always joke because we kind of had to create our own reference range for 25-year-old men who are all a little bit narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> I say this as a mother of one. Yeah. Um, joking aside, uh, you know, establishing norms is really important because how else do you make objective decisions? And right. and my job is to to not only uh, look out for the health and welfare of the families we're building, but also the health and welfare of these guys. And mm-hmm. so, getting that information is super important. So, what other kinds of questions do you ask from a health standpoint? Yeah, there's a a big piece of it is around the genetic history. Um, And so donors have to, through multiple different uh, steps, um, be evaluated for their personal and then their family medical history. And this is very comprehensive, as you can imagine. Um, But most importantly is all of that information is interpreted by and further facilitated by a licensed genetic counselor. Um, What's interesting is, you know, you really can't rely on somebody just saying yes or no to a bunch of questions. These are not clinically trained people. And so they don't know what if colitis means irritable bowel or, or, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, big difference. So we have, um, we have a licensed genetic counselor who we have a team of them, but we have a counselor that will speak to every donor. And it helps to put together a pedigree where you you start to get insights into potential increased risk to donor-conceived offspring um, that maybe the donor isn't even aware of. And he can be fully forthcoming, but not realize that there's a potential bleeding disorder or a pattern suggestive of a familial cancer syndrome. So, um, so there's a lot of questions that are around, around the genetic exam. Um, and then there's... Jamie, I want to interrupt you real quick. Yeah. 
Sure. So sometimes we have people who are looking for the person, the donor with the perfect family history. What, what would you say to that person? Yeah. I mean, I think we all need to accept that there is no perfect human. And I think it, I think it is a totally understandable and reasonable thing to say, Hey, I am spending a lot of money in this pursuit to build my family through ART. I'm talking to you, doctor. You're not free. <laughs> this whole process is very um, anxiety provoking. I feel a lot of loss of control. Um, I need to trust a lot of people and it's very expensive. And so what elements can I control? One of the things people really want to control is uh, access to that information about their donor and they're trying to look for the perfect donor. And, you know, it's very empowering, I think, to remind people that none of us are perfect. But if you are going with a sperm bank that has a very robust thorough screening process that makes that information available, then you can go with a, to a genetic counselor, you can speak to a physician, you can talk about it within your partnership if you're partnered. And you're really just looking to kind of weigh that person's history against yours. So... Uh, we will let you know if there's a donor who has uh, a cousin with uh, ADHD. Um, it's probably not enough to disqualify that donor. But if you say everybody in my family's had ADHD, that is a hard stop, right? That's that's a very personal decision. And so I think helping people understand that is great. Um, that's a separate conversation, of course, from recessive carrier screening, which is another whole like mind meld for patients sometimes because they say, what do you mean he's a carrier for recessive disease? Well, we all are. <laughs> the more yeah, we look, we are. <laughs> the more we screen for, the more we find out that we're carriers. Um, and it's kind of remarkable that we have been reproducing for, for thousands and thousands of years um, somewhat safely now that we have yeah. just all this information it's terrifying jenny i have a related question to that because you know a lot of times we do expanded care screening now i think we're pretty routinely on our patients so on our end we're explaining them you know kind of what that means but you know every now and then you'll get a or somebody who's screened and of course we use a certain test i usually use invitae but i don't necessarily know what the sperm banks use so i always tell my patients you know, when you get this information from the donor bank, make sure that whatever you've tested positive for, that the test the bank uses, you know, to also test for that. In the event that you guys didn't test him for that, what recourse do the recipients have? Would they be able to like say, hey, could you get him to do the Invitae test or test mm -hmm. for the specific abnormality? And is yeah. that just a phone call? They just call you and ask you that? Absolutely. And I, I don't think that it's common for sperm banks to do that, but because we have this genetic counseling team, they're really there not just to screen the donors, but also to help help the facilitators sort of work through this genetic matching process. Um, so just so that everybody is clear, you know, a recessive carrier screening panel, what you're really looking for is that you don't want to have the same recessive mutation as a donor. Uh, there's no risk to your child if if you carry a recessive mutation and he doesn't or vice versa. Um, so it is, it's all about that matching. Um, and most of the panels overlap pretty well. So it, it works out most of the time. Um, what you can do on our website is if you know what you're a carrier for, you can actually filter by that. So oh, you can say, well, show me donors who aren't carriers for this. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's awesome. And in the circumstance where you're a carrier for something and it's not on our panel, so like, oh my gosh, what do I do? That's when you pick up the phone and we are able to facilitate special testing. 
Um, and that just involves us taking a sample and sending it to the lab and just looking for that one specific gene. Um, and thankfully, because, you know, incidence of these things is usually on the order of one in 400 to one in 2000, uh, it's more likely than not that he'll be negative and, and you'll be good to go. Mm-hmm. So to, to kind of change the, when we're talking about things being positive and negative and we're talking about sperm, the thing that comes up to my mind is the infamous CMV. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Dun dun dun. Our wonderful theoretical risk. So I, I'd like to I'd like to have like somebody from a sperm bank. I know how I explain this to my patients, but yeah, like from from the sperm bank perspective, why is this if it is important? <laughs> yeah, we could argue whether it's actually important or not from your patient perspective, but I'll wind it back and and explain why it's even a topic of conversation. So CMV is, you know, it's in the family of viruses that causes chicken pox and herpes. It's it's ubiquitous. By the time you're a grown adult, something like 70% of the adult population has been exposed and you pretty much don't know that you've had it. It comes and goes as a common cold. Um, If the first time you're exposed to CMV is while you are pregnant, uh, there is a potential high risk to that child to develop what's called congenital CMV. And that can have pretty significant consequences. Anything from deafness, it's the most common cause of congenital deafness, um, to severe, you know, malformations and, and even death. So it's something we want to avoid. Um, not to add more scary things about being pregnant, but people who encounter this encounter it in the community. You've got snotty kids that are coming home from preschool or you're riding the subway to work or any of the ways that we get exposed to viruses, that's how you get exposed. So in the context of a sperm bank or sperm donation, what you want to avoid and what the FDA mandates we avoid is banking sperm from somebody who is currently actively infected with CMV, meaning he he just got the virus, he has a sniffly nose, he's shedding virus in huge numbers. And I think after living in a pandemic for the last two and a half years, we're all getting really comfortable with this idea of acute infection, remote infection, shedding virus and antibodies and all these things. Yeah. And so... A donor who's actively infectious, that's bad news. Uh, and so we screen donors. <laughs> we screen donors for any, for uh, you can use serology or antibody testing um, to determine whether or not he's currently, currently positive. Um, the, about 50% of our donors are have had some history of CMV, and you can see that based on the antibody profile in their blood, but they're not currently infectious. Uh, so there is an option to select a CMV totally negative donor, meaning he's never been exposed, or a CMV remote donor. Um, he's, I think it shows up as CMV positive, even though that's very confusing. So the reason why we do this is because with very little science <laughs> and very little data, back in the 1980s, when we were really nervous about HIV and other infectious mm-hmm. diseases being transmitted through semen, we kind of threw CMV in there. Oh, that's how it got in. And it's the last remaining holdout. <laughs> Let me tell you, we ship vials to 40 countries. We ship vials of sperm to about 1,500 locations in the United States. You know, there's about 350 reproductive endocrinologies like IVF centers. So that means there's a lot of places we ship sperm where they're not reading ASRM guidelines. They don't know about CMV. You know, these are primary care settings or even at-home inseminations. 
And we have been around for 45 years. I have never, ever heard of a person getting CMV from a donor insemination. So just empirically speaking. So good to know. That is so good to know. (laughs) Empirically speaking. Now, medical legal, I would advise you to make sure your patients have heard this spiel or read it somewhere and signed off that they understand. And then I would, I have, I would feel very comfortable allowing a CMV negative donor use, uh, I mean, CMV negative patient use a CMV positive donor, but you must, must, must make sure that they understand and they sign off because it's just little me out there saying, I don't think it's a big deal. And here's all the empiric reasons why, because you know, that's not how our world works, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Good information. So what other infectious disease screening do you do? And I know there's a certain FDA panel. So you may want to kind of go over that. Is there anything, and is there anything outside of the FDA panel that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, most of the infectious disease screening is is prescribed by the FDA, so not a lot of creativity there. <laughs> um, one of the differences between, say, an egg donor and a sperm donor is sperm donors are, are coming in to donate two or three times a week, and they usually do that for a matter of months. And so this panel gets repeated multiple times, and the sperm actually has to be frozen in quarantine for six months with another negative panel before it can be released. So the sperm supply from an infectious disease screening perspective is really, really, really safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know how safe the blood supply is, but we don't quarantine blood for six months. So it's Mm -hmm. very safe. Um, In addition, the donor will have recurring, uh, will have periodic physical exams. And so the the physician will be evaluating for certain indications of genetic conditions, but also signs of infectious disease or track marks, you know, sort of proxies for maybe unsafe behavior. Um, But a lot of what we're screening for, we have to do so in what I call indirect methods, because you can't really... Uh, we don't have, for example, a good test for Zika virus, and it's not the virus du jour anymore, but we still have to screen for travel history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the only way we can proxy for a potential exposure to Zika virus. Um, there's also, we have a, a long list of questions that are meant to screen out for uh, things that we don't directly test for. So herpes, HPV, um, and just general social behaviors that are, I kind of put it in the category of things that your mother would disapprove of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, you know, again, humans are not perfect and we allow people to be people. We're trying to screen them psychologically to make sure these are people that are telling the truth. Um, and then we are asking them repeated questions so often that any inconsistency is also an indication they may not be telling the truth. So after somebody's in the program for the period of time that they're with us, we have a very, we have very good insight into this person. Um, And as a result, really from an infectious disease perspective, really, really safe sperm. Do you have any criteria for tattoos? Because as I think back over, you know, the last decade and prior to that, you know, tattoos are now really, really common in all of our patients. And, you know, kind of back a lot of egg donors who don't have tattoos. I'm just curious about sperm donors. Yeah. I mean, is there like a three month window? Like if you've gotten a tattoo, you can't or is is there any limitation? Yeah, there's actually um, FDA guidance and New York State guidance. That's helpful. And I can't remember the specific window off the top of my head, but there is something in black and white related to that. Um, And then the absolute 
no, uh, you know, the hard stop is somebody who has a home tattoo or anything that might have been received in a dirty environment. So if you've been to a tattoo parlor that's licensed and sort of meets all of our standards, I've never walked in a tattoo parlor myself. So I don't really know what those standards are. But um, but yeah, no, we have we do have that. And the other one that's so interesting is we've seen in the last 10 years the reported use of marijuana. You know, mm. that's another thing that it used to be if you used it, I don't know how honest people would have been about using an illicit yeah. substance, which is now legal in many of the places where we recruit donors. Um, and so the recreational use of marijuana is another one we've had to kind of put some parameters around like how much is too much. Um, and I've I'm I've been asking the our sort of counterparts in the research world for better indications of health of sperm beyond just what we see under the light microscope mm-hmm. because i suspect a lot of the social history you know alcohol use or marijuana use we can limit it uh tobacco smoke is an absolute no no tobacco whatsoever marijuana pretty limited um i don't like habitual use do y'all check caffeine levels for tobacco? You know what? We do not. We do not. And that's uh, that's a big difference between egg donors and sperm donors. That's kind of interesting. Chewing in the South, you know, we have a lot of people that chew tobacco. So they don't smoke, but they chew. Right. And, and now right. everybody vapes. Yeah. What was, yeah. Yeah. Everybody vapes. Yep. Yep. Um, so, you know, again, the the risk factors there have more to do with the quality of sperm. And so... What you're trying to do is get a comprehensive enough picture that you can say the sperm that's in the vials is capable of inducing a healthy healthy pregnancy. And so again, you're you're not going to get a perfect a perfect circumstance, and we don't hook everybody up to a lie detector test. But generally speaking, you can get pretty good correlation between a reported social history and the way the sperm looks. And we've even told donors a lot of times in there, or potential donors will come in and fill out their their questionnaires. Um, and if we feel the substance abuse on any of these scales is a little bit, or use, not abuse, I should say, uh, is a little bit higher than we'd like, um, we will say, cut back to this amount. We'll see you in three to six months. Mm-hmm. And they'll come back if they're motivated and their sperm will look a lot better. And it's the first time these people have said, oh, do you mean there's a consequence to what I do, <laughs> what I put in my body? Yeah, and what do you what changes do you actually see? I've always felt like morphologically the sperm changes with more marijuana use. Is, do you see that, or are there any other changes you see in sperm with alcohol or marijuana? Yeah, no, we absolutely see morphologic changes and just decline in motility and count um, overall. So know, all of the above, basically. Yeah, all of the above. Interesting. And, and marijuana is one of those that stays in your system for so long. It's you know it it has mm. that. Um, it has the affiliation with fat. And so it can be, oh. it can be found in your system for a long time. So that's why we'll tell people three to six months. And we know it takes about three months to sort of create a new batch of sperm cells. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody who will be compliant enough to or motivated enough to listen to the advice and come back, those guys tend to make pretty great donors as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. a lot of times they're they've just never thought about it before. So, um, so yeah, 
So you, you've mentioned a couple times about, you know, guys coming and donating multiple times and things like this. Um, one thing that's always, especially recently in the media and Netflix are, are these situations where there are donors who have an exorbitant number of mm. um, children and things like that. How, how do y'all deal with that type of thing? Is there any type of monitoring of that type of situation? Yeah. So I think it's really, really important to establish the difference between, first of all, using a donor that you might connect with on social media. All of these things I described that we screen donors for, including the legal protections and all of this, do not exist. And you have no idea how many other children that guy will produce because you have no nobody's looking at it. So there's that piece. There's obviously um, you know, cases of just frankly, fraud. I mean, it's criminal behavior where we've had, we've found out that physicians were inseminating women with their own sperm. I mean, this is just disgusting behavior and it's just criminal, right? So um, I think that there's an obvious fascination and concern around those things, but certainly doesn't belong in the camp of a commercial sperm bank. The way the, the industry leading commercial sperm banks go about this is we set a a number of family unit limits. It's a target that limit applies globally. So as I mentioned, we ship to about 40 countries. We have a target of 25 family units. So a family unit could be a parent and any number of children, but it's a nuclear family. And on average, our donors are around 18 or less family units. So it's it, ne- it doesn't typically get to 25, but that's the target. So I'm sorry, can I interrupt? So by yeah. family unit, do you mean 18 children or you mean 18 families that could each have two or three children potentially? The latter, the latter. Okay. So there are 18 nuclear families. Mm-hmm. 18 nuclear families, okay. That's right. Um, and so the way we go about uh, limiting that is, so number one, the major sperm banks in the U.S. actually share, uh, there's a, a donor database that we share and we will figure out if any donor has um, gone to a different city and donated to a different bank, um, in which case I will immediately pull all vials and not sell any. Because for me, it's honestly not just about the number of kids, but it's about the fact that this person's a liar. Yeah. <laughs> so I I react very strongly to that. Um, fortunately, it happens very rarely, yeah. mostly for logistical reasons. You have to live in a place for six months or more to be a donor. It's not like you're flying into various cities, right? So, mm-hmm. so there's that. Um, And then the way we achieve our family unit limits is we limit the number of vials we will produce and release out into the world. Um, And I have actually pretty good data on the correlation between vials and children. And uh, I get those data because we ship to the UK where HFEA requires a one-to-one knowledge of a vial of sperm and whether it produced a pregnancy or not, exactly how many family units have been created. And they have national limits that we must adhere to or else we're not in compliance and we can't work with UK clinics. Um, And so I have that information, which is really helpful for the back of the envelope math. Um, And then I uh, I also learn through the process of a notification for new genetic information, new family health information that might be emerging, where we've made a determination that we need to reach out to all of the families who have used this sperm donor. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we have probably an 80, 85% report rate. So we usually hear back from the far majority of people, whether or not they were successful and whether they had a child. But there's always some people that just don't bother um, or you know, we just don't hear from them. After you send out a notification that says, hey, we have relevant health information that might impact you, your family, we don't know if you've had a child. All of a sudden, the phones are ringing, and we know exactly <laughs> how many children were produced. Um, and you know, this we facilitate a lot of sperm out in the world, and so this happens enough that I have the information to say, okay, we can only produce X number of vials from now on. Um, so anyway, I feel pretty comfortable with that information, and I think it's really, really distinct from uh, the less visible, less regulated, less controlled. And even by regulated, I mean sort of self-regulated, right? Um, Ways of accessing donor sperm. So I have one last question. When you talked about the nuclear family, a lot of times when I have couples that are using donor sperm to conceive, I'll always mention, and I try and mention at the beginning, but I also certainly mention it when you know, the patient's pregnant. I always say, you know, if you really want to have a baby that's genetically linked to this child, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and go back to the bank and order more sperm and keep it stored so that, you know, two or three years from now, when you want to have baby number two, you'll have that sperm available. And I guess what I don't know is, is that correct information or not? (laughs) No, that's absolutely true. People find they, you know, they're oftentimes so focused on just having this first child and they're not really thinking the five-year plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, honestly, it's expensive for some people. I mean, vials of sperm cost about a thousand dollars each. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's worth it, <laughs> but I think it's expensive for people. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times they're thinking, let's just buy enough. And if we want to have another child, we'll go back. Well, the reality is, is we do limit the number of vials we'll sell. And so oftentimes they're sold out. Um, what California Cryobank's been trying to do is to hold back a reserve of vials that will only be available to people who have proven that they have a child already by that donor. Yeah. Um, and so we try to keep that family bank, but it's not always, it's not always feasible. So if we have somebody who comes back and they didn't do that previously, it's worth at least contacting the bank to see if there are any additional vials available. Absolutely. And um, and cool. we'll even reach out to the donor uh, and try to facilitate additional vials. There's usually some cost to doing that because it requires us to bring him back in and requalify him. And but for but people have over the years been more than happy to to pay a little bit to be able to get that donor back in. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's another there's another thing on this sort of conversation. You know, you might hear from patients that are perhaps uncomfortable with the idea of 25 family units around the world, my God. Um, First of all, I think it's really important for them to understand what is the boundary of that family unit because they might feel different about globally versus in the city of, say, you know, Colorado, uh, Denver, Colorado, right? So that's very different. Um, But the other thing is, I always tell people that a directed donor is not for everybody, but a directed donor is somebody that if you and, and or if you have a partner identify this person that's interested in being your donor and this makes sense for your family and you can absolutely control the number of family units, you have to have all of the other stuff in consideration like who's, who is present at Thanksgiving next year and how does everybody feel about that? Mm-hmm. But it's a really nice option for some people who are 
more concerned about this whole idea of having lots of um, families they're related to. Uh, and on that note, I'll say one more thing, which is we have gotten, I think, pretty sophisticated as a society in terms of thinking through privacy and how to respect each other. And I know way more positive stories about these donor received kids who get to an age and they feel empowered to sort of find these kids they're related to and make a decision whether or not they feel kinship towards them or not. Um, Then I know about people who regret being related to that many people. And I think it has a lot more to do with disclosure and how we talk about it than, than just the mere existence of lots of people that you're related to. Well, that was awesome. Thank you for opening the curtains for us because, you know, you know, I say certain things and I don't know if I'm saying them correctly. It's just really nice to feel reassured that I think we're all kind of saying the same thing. And 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 I just think it's um, fabulous that people are much more open and privacy is not as big of an issue as it used to be. And um, I'm just thrilled to have had you here today. So any last closing comments you have or? No, I mean, I guess I would just encourage people if they have questions about donor sperm to not be shy about asking them. Uh, you know, a bank like California Grab Bank is really exists for the reason of building healthy families, and we want you to ask questions. Um, and I am so crazy, I'm happy to have people direct questions my way and talk to them anytime because um, the last thing I want is for somebody to find this to be a scary experience. You know, I want people to be excited about taking this step. So don't be a stranger. Very good. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review on us in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us now on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on and leave us a like or a comment. You can also visit FertilityDocsUncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about your infertility. All questions will be asked on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and when to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to y'all soon. Bye. 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 Bye.